0: Welcome to Insights on Demand, a podcast from Business Talent Group, where we discuss the latest developments in the future of work and other pressing business issues. Today, we're excited to present a conversation between Adam Zellner, BTG's Vice President of Enterprise and Corporate Development, and Steve Rader, the Deputy Director for the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation, or CoSI at NASA. COSI collaborates with innovators across NASA and the U.S. government to generate ideas and solve important problems via crowd based challenges issued through the NASA Tournament Lab. As the Deputy Director for COSI, Steve is responsible for facilitating and promoting the use of collaborative innovation platforms in support of federal projects. He joins us today to discuss his work at COSI, the benefits that the crowd based model delivers to federal agencies, and recent news about the NASA Open Innovation Services 2 contract, which expands the program to include a wide range of microtasking, freelance, and on-demand talent platforms, including Business Talent Group. Without further ado, here are Adam and Steve.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Steve. It's great to have you. Oh, Thanks, Adam. It's great to be on. Kick off, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation, known as COSI, including the founding principles behind it and uh, how it got off the ground and, and how long it's been?
2: Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of an interesting story. Back in 2009, Dr. Jeff Davis at NASA, who heads up the Human Health and Performance Directorate, kind of deals with all the astronaut health. He actually got a big budget cut, and so as a result of that, all of their R and D work was really kind of in a crunch. And so, to figure out how to do that with fewer resources, uh, Jeff kind of went out on a, a mission to kind of benchmark with other companies to see what were other folks doing in this new world that might be of help with his new smaller budget and you know he came across P and others that had been pioneering in this area and also i think took a course of kareem lakani at harvard business school and that kind of opened up this world of open innovation and so in 2010 he put together a pilot program with Innocentive and yet two and kind of around that same time, uh, there was another manager at headquarters, Jason Cruzan, who started working with Harvard as well and also started some pilot work with Topcoder and Tongle. And it turned out that all of these pilots were really successful in kind of tapping into the internal crowd at NASA through the Innocent of an at Work platform that they were piloting, as well as external challenges and tech searches and then the Topcoder challenges as well. And about that time, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy was looking at this phenomenon of open data, open source, open innovation, and they were really promoting the government's pivot to this new phenomenon that was going on. And in looking around the government, they found that NASA had done some of this work and had some knowledge about it. So in 2011, they asked NASA if they would stand up a center of excellence around this idea of open innovation to not only promote it within NASA, but to actually help the rest of the federal government to help adopt it. And so to kind of mentor other agencies and and kind of provide tools and ways for them to get smarter about it and to implement some of these methods. And that's that's really how it got started. And, and it's been a really interesting journey uh, over the past nine years.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. And you know, given that the crowd-based challenge model was originally established to augment NASA's own R&D capabilities is obviously scaled uh, somewhat organically from there as, as multiple things came together. What do you see as the key benefits of the challenge model? What does it bring to the projects that you all take on? Yeah,
2: that's great. And I'm glad you
1: kind of emphasized that because that really was our first starting point was this
2: idea of open innovation and prizes and challenges as the way to access communities. The big benefit is the diversity, right? When you've got a a closed R&D shop, even if you have some of the best folks in the world, and we do, right? I mean, NASA has some just amazing uh, scientists and engineers. I I think it's easy to forget the importance of diversity in R&D and innovation. And I would say that one of the big things that we've seen as we've been really looking at this and why it's successful and why it's so important is that the world has changed. We've always had technology changing our options for how we can get things done better and those then impact our skills that we need in order to use those technologies. But the rate has changed. It has just continued to accelerate. And it's to the point now where we're at this kind of collision point of growth of the population along with the wealth of countries kind of bringing along a lot of education systems over the last 20 to 30 years, that suddenly there are more educated people around uh, than ever before. In fact, there's a stat I use a lot that says that 90% of all scientists that have ever lived on planet Earth are alive today. That's huge, right? And if you look at similar curves in PhDs or in numbers of patents, they're really these curves that are amazingly steep right now. We've gone from like four or five years ago, a few hundred thousand patent applications a year, to I think in 2017, it was 3 million a year. Same kind of a phenomenon going on in PhDs. And the result of that is just a lot more technology and a lot more technology coming quickly and it's kind of inter playing with each other. And so for R&D, what that means is, it's a lot harder to find those technologies that can give you an edge because you end up spending all your time either researching to try to find it and kind of chasing your tail, or you just go inward and pretend it's not there. In both cases, you're not finding the best starting points for going and solving your problems, right? So... This idea of bringing in diversity is a well-known piece of the innovation equation. But what we're seeing is a lot of technologies and skills needed to solve hard problems, needed to kind of move us forward on a grand scale are only outside of the agency or, or are largely outside of the agency because you know our whole agency is 60,000 people if you add up all of the Boeings, the Lockheed, everyone on contract. So that's not all engineers, right? That's receptionists and travel folks and you know, security guards. There's just not that many people working space. And when you look at that larger population, you get both the advantages of numbers
1: as well as the diversity that that brings across multiple industries. It's super interesting. I love that stat. About 90% of all scientists uh, that have ever been alive are alive today, it really does speak to just the power of the crowd and if they're given opportunities and, and ways to help that they can. You mentioned the White House, the encouragement to create a center of excellence. What Other agencies were quick to get on board with the concept. Yeah, you know, after some legislation
2: that kind of enabled people to use prizes and challenges came along, several agencies really popped up and were early adopted. I would say Department of Energy was uh, very active early on. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they were pretty big. We've seen, you know, work in USAID, in NIH. Yeah, I would have to go back and think because I don't want to leave anybody out. There were several agencies that really got on board quickly. I think there are some in the military as well. Uh, And we actually formed a community practice that GSA now runs. And, you know, there's challenge.gov, which is the site where we post all challenges that the government puts out there. And it's kind of this running list of, of a lot of open innovation work going on around the world of government. And... It's funny, we actually collaborate with folks. So for instance, we had an internal crowd that we built called NASA at Work where we use our employees as a crowd. And we had a great meeting with CIA. They went and implemented something similar, but now they've actually done some really creative things that we are now learning from them. So there's kind of this back and forth with agencies on trying to learn from each other on how to best use this. And it's,
1: we're still experimenting, right? Yeah, it's exciting to hear about the innovation being shared cross-agency, and and that you're, you know, for example, CIA, you're learning from what they've done and, and built their own version and modified it for what worked for them, and, and you can all leverage it. Moving to noise in 2015, COSI launched the NASA Open Innovation Services Contract. What were the goals with noise, and how did it differ from how the program was administered previously? What was the shift um, that you were yeah. all looking for? Yeah. So the early
2: years, we had a direct contract with Innocentive and yet to. And then we had a contract with with Harvard Business School of all people, who then had a kind of a subcontract with Top Coder. And I think they also reached out to Tongle every once in a while. It's interesting working with Harvard because it's this, you know, older than the country institution and we think our bureaucracies are bad. It turns out <laughs> Harvard has some pretty amazing bureaucracy and a big overhead. So part of it was we wanted to kind of move out to a a little bit more streamlined, inexpensive model where we could access these vendors easily. One of the things we were seeing, lots of new communities come online, right? So we were seeing that there were lots of different crowd platforms that were coming out and offering similar services. And so when we went to our contracting folks, we basically tried to be creative and recognize that this was kind of a new era of doing business. That there weren't going to just be a few of these; that they they were going to change and they were going to come online. And we were still in this experimentation phase, and you know challenges originally everyone thought that was just good for ideation. And then it turned out, well, oh, you could also get really amazing video work. And oh, you can get software. And oh, you can solve algorithm problems and data science problems. And so the breadth of things you could do with challenges and with open innovations was expanding. And so it wasn't like one vendor was optimal for everything. Right. So in in the contracts world at NASA and I'm imagining this way a, a lot of places, it is like a nine to twelve month Ordeal to put a contract in place, and so if we were going to do these single one-off contracts with everyone, that was going to be a huge amount of overhead. And uh, so we put our heads together and said, "Well, we're kind of still experimenting. Let's use this." This, and I have to credit the, the procurement folks because they actually presented us with these options and said, "We have this kind of lightweight way to to bring in what we call a multi-vendor IDIQ contract, which is indefinite deliverable, indefinite quantities, and." Bring a bunch of contractors on that all meet the requirements uh, that you're basically looking for. And then you can issue task orders onto that contract and compete them, right? And so you'd say, hey, I need to have a piece of software built. And you'd put what we call an RFP, or now we call it an RFTP, but it's basically a request for a plan, right? Tell us how you would do this, how much it would cost, and what your schedule is and why you're a good fit, right? Why, why, should, why should you do this? What are, your, what are your qualifications? And on that first contract, we had 10 vendors. And obviously, only a subset of those were going to bid on software contracts, right? And only a subset would bid on problem solving. Uh, and only a subset would bid on video. And so it was kind of like they could self-select what they were specialty in and provide a plan for us. And then we would pick the best value for the government, and that would become a fixed-price task order. That enabled us to really see what the full spectrum of open source or open innovation communities could do, and it expanded our minds. About the same time that we did that, we actually also noticed... That we could use purchase cards, government purchase cards, uh, which are basically credit cards that at the time had like a three thousand dollar limit, and we found a few crowd platforms that that was kind of their price point for running challenges was you know a few hundred dollars up to two or three thousand dollars. That mechanism is now up to a ten thousand dollar limit, and so we can actually do quite a bit using just a purchase card without a formal contract, and so. That led to kind of some experimentation in. Well, if we can get this for fifty thousand dollars and this, you know, software for thirty thousand dollars and this other problem solved for a lot more, what can we get over here? We started, you know, doing graphics challenges and small video challenges, animation challenges, and then we even did some design challenges and engineering design challenges, and found some fairly amazing stuff. And so that's become a a compliment, and it opened our eyes to the freelance world, which kind of overlapped in some of those platforms.
1: You're describing what, you know, I've seen other organizations, enterprises especially, start to build out a portfolio of marketplaces that help them address a series of business areas or topics that require support or could be improved. You know, they may start with one area, but they go beyond that. And it sounds like there was a learning that you all experienced, you know, sort of growth in the understanding of how this type of talent, how this type of model could support your work and take it to the next level. You mentioned the recognition that there was some sort of overlap with freelancer. I think that speaks to Noise 2, which expands the program to 19 awardees. We're happy to be part of that group. Noise 2 includes microtasking, freelancers, high-end independent talent like that from BTG. How do you view the spectrum of talent sources that are currently available to you all? And what are you looking to achieve that might be different now that there's been an expansion?
2: Yeah, if I backed up a little, like we we kind of happened upon some platforms that did contests, and they were kind of a passion community that did freelance work as well. And you know, but we also noticed Topcoder started doing more of that, and we noticed, hey, these platforms are putting together communities of people who have passion. Sometimes they curate those in different ways, and that's the real. Power And so when we put together Noise 2, one of the things we wanted to do is say, hey, what we're really about is finding value for the government using these new crowd-based resources. And so how do we do that? And so that led to us expanding to these freelancers and open talent as part of that contract. What do we hope? I will say we are still learning, right? Part of this is learning. Part of it is adoption. You know, it's finding not just what works, but how to actually get the teams within an organization to use it, which is a huge thing. Part of this has also been learning of why this is thing. You know, we we came across a study that was showing that there's going to be more people in the freelance economy in a few years than there are in the regular organizations. That's a huge shift. And the more we looked at that, the more we saw that there was this fundamental shift going on where a lot of people for whatever reason, are kind of fed up with traditional organizations. But then we also noticed that this rapid change was requiring lifelong learning. And that that's a huge component of the freelance kind of world is that they're able to be more agile. And companies are now having a hard time finding all the right skills and technologies to hire. But If you go out to these platforms of freelancers, you can almost always find somebody who has the latest and greatest technological skills, right? So these are the kind of things that that make us go, okay, wait, if we as the government are going to stay ahead of the curve and be competitive and value-added, we as NASA are going to actually still be relevant as the organization that helps keep America on the cutting edge of space. Well, we need to be able to adapt to that rapid change too. And we're having those same problems of hiring critical skills, but we're still having problems finding those latest and greatest technologies. So how can we use this to go do that? And we're still in early days of trying out the model and seeing where can we bring in teams of people or individuals that these platforms have. But I will say early indications are that this was exactly the right pivot at exactly the right time. There are conversations that are going on throughout government on how do we adapt. And it's really, I I take a little bit of pride in that because the government (laughs) is not always seen as very agile and keeping on the cutting edge. And we think we're really contributing that. And we see a lot of willing participants around government that also recognize that and are embracing this. And we recognize that means some fundamental you know, legal things are going to have to change, some laws are going to have to change, some policies are going to have to change to get it to firing on all cylinders.
1: To run with what you were talking to at the end there, you know, the opportunity to be a change agent for innovation across government. How do you help agencies understand which open innovation awardee is the right solution for a particular project? I read an interview. You stated you're looking to automate the process. For are there tools you're building? What steps are you taking to do a good job educating folks on what's possible? Then yeah, how do you, how do you select the right person to help you with what's possible? And and it's it's an area where I think a lot of organizations are looking for assistance. And and you all seem to be you know you've you've got a head start on lots of the enterprises out there. So we'd be interested to yeah. hear y- your approach. You know, it's interesting because
2: I'm going back and, and reading a, kind of an older book now. It's called The Long Tail by uh, Chris Anderson, who was at Wired. And it's really interesting because he talks a lot about this. And it's been known for a while, that with the expansion of the internet, with the expansion of options, you know, this filtering becomes hugely important, right? How do you get the right signal out of the noise? And when we started this, there were just a few crowds that were available. Now there's, I think I heard a count of something like 700 communities out there that are kind of in this space. And so you're right. How do you find the right tool? This actually became fairly apparent early on when Dr. Davis was leading things. He actually brought in this idea of a solution mechanism guide, which was kind of a, a wizard that we built around selecting which mechanism you needed. It goes solve your problem. So depending on where you were in maturity of your project, how much money you had, how much time you had, and what kind of technology you were trying to pursue, you could kind of select those, and it would give you kind of a side by side comparison of you can go use a tech search or you can do a software challenge. It wasn't necessarily pointing you to a specific platform as much as it was a kind of how you can go by doing that. And it included you know, regular contracts as well and space Act agreements and partnerships. And it was mainly for NASA folks, actually folks within his organization, to help them figure out, I've got this problem, where should I go to kind of solve it? As we've experimented with this, we, we've gotten to know a lot of the capabilities out there. Again, we're still learning. But I'll say, when another agency or a project comes to us and says, hey, we've got this problem... We have a pretty good feel for kind of what that's going to need. But remember, what we put together was this multi-vendor contract where we don't actually have to go select. We actually can compete that. And then the hope is that they'll self-select, provide proposals for the best way to go do that. And one of the reasons we do it that way is because things are changing so much and because even each platform, each of these companies that we use, they're... Always bringing on new capability that we don't always know about. And so trying to keep abreast of that was just really hard. And so this competitive contract actually helps us to discover through the proposal process what those new capabilities are, where they can help the government. And that's been really great. And one of the things that we work hard on is trying to streamline that process so that that competitive process is both not a heavy burden for our, our project owners, our team, or the vendors. So for instance, we have a five-page proposal that we limit all of the vendors to. That's kind of hard sometimes to put all of what you want to try to propose you're doing in a five page document and a few fields in a Google form. But what we are trying to do is keep our vendors from having to spend, you know, hours and hours developing a really meticulous, you know, check all the boxes, 25 page procurement. Because you know, there's only one winner in most cases. And and if you're investing lots and lots of man hours writing proposals, and those proposals are long and technical, that's not doing the vendors any favors either, right? So that doesn't make for a great model. So we're trying to streamline that to where it goes fast, it goes lean, and we kind of lean into this, provide lots of opportunity for all of these
1: communities to, to play and then do that in a way that, that's not too burdensome. What do you believe are the keys to drive adoption? Now that there's an agreement in place, you have a group of 19 marketplaces that are approved to be worked with. How do you promote the usage of these innovative talent solutions with individual project owners? How do you get folks to embrace the next gen of work? These are great questions
2: because I got to say, adoption was the key problem early on. We recognized what an amazing tool this was. But early adoption was really hard. And in fact, there's a Harvard Business School case study called Houston, We Have a Problem that basically explains a real issue we had when we tried to actually use this at NASA initially. Jeff came back and was like, this is great it works." He told his managers and his scientists, let's go start doing this, and immediately got kind of pushback. The best story on this is actually Alf Bingham, who kind of started incentive. right? He he was at Eli Lilly, and he was really a believer that, you know, you've got to open things up if you want to really want to find the innovation. So he went to their chief scientist and he said, hey, I want to put these 21 unsolved problems out on, on a website and just see if we can get other people to solve this for us. And the chief scientist agreed. They put them up on the website. And immediately, all 20-some-odd of those scientists came to the chief scientist and said you need to take those down. You hired us to be the experts. We're the ones that have to do that. This. this is proprietary. You're giving stuff away." And so they did. Uh, and he had to reconvince them, hey, okay, if you need to rephrase it or whatever, just take out a proprietary whatever. But he eventually got them up there and almost all of them got solved in ways that were really innovative. And the lesson out of that is the gut for the folks that can own those problems or own the current solutions is they don't like it. They don't like putting their problems out. They don't like the... uh, And and the way I talk about it is we hire really innovative people. And if you think about it from their perspective, that initial ask was, hey, we want to take the most fun part of your job, the innovation part, and we want to give it to somebody else. And why would anyone be happy with that, right? And so we had to actually work to to change our messaging and to really take a lower profile. I called it boiling the frog, where instead of getting managers to mandate going out and and doing this, that we still had a little bit of that, but we had more getting really stories together that we could say, hey, look, this really worked well. You should try it. Talking some projects into it and then getting good results that we could then share more. And that snowball has grown. And in fact, this year, I think we've got something like three times the projects that we did last year, because that snowball has gained momentum. And our storytelling is now not, we want to go get solutions to your problem, innovative solutions to your problem using crowdsourcing. What we say is, look, Jane over here, had a problem, and she needed to find the best starting point so that she could go innovate and do work. And she ran this challenge, or she went and did this. And look, we found an algorithm to do things 10x faster. We found a technology that she could use that she had never heard of, and now she's creating a system that's 15x better than what we had. Right? That's a story that that anyone can say. I want to be. That person, right? But we didn't highlight the fact that there was some solver out there that brought us that, or there's some solver. And part of that is messaging, right? Because we wanted to take that threat piece out. And so we advertise this: the world is changing fast. You have to have better ways to find the new technologies and to get the best ideas and, and expertise skills to bear on your problem. And innovation challenges are a great way to do that to get your starting point that then you go innovate. So we tell people, you'd never start, you know, trying to solve a, a significant problem with a 10-year-old computer or with some old software or with old tools, right? You always want to go find the, the, the latest and greatest. And that, that's that been resonating with our folks pretty well. Uh, and it's starting to gain at kind of every level, which you kind of have to bring along. But part of this too is we had to spell out the problem. Uh, which it took us a couple of years to figure out, oh, we actually have a problem in that if we don't find these solutions, then private sector space and other countries are going to find better solutions, and then we have a relevancy problem. And, and we're seeing that play out in industry, right, with all the companies that are going out of business uh, because they're not actually innovating fast enough. There's lots of stats on that that we can go into, but establishing the need was a, a big piece of that too.
1: I mean, you describe a grassroots effort, you know packaging stories and, and bringing those to folks you interact with along the journey to me, what jumps out is you're describing also the focus on innovation and growth. you know there are organizations out there who don't invest enough in removing that threat, and it might be because their intent is actually to take advantage of the arbitrage opportunity that could exist in theory here and, and organizations will use, but that the value of the crowd, of, of crowdsourced talent, of freelance talent, if done correctly, is the opportunity to innovate and create growth and new opportunity for the organization Absolutely. as a whole and for each individual within the organization. Absolutely. I, I
2: loved what Paul just did when he was at Microsoft, where he basically got rid of the standing army contractors and said, look, the core team... And they were doing like Office 365 videos and training videos and and support materials. And he said, go just use freelancers, right? And they had an enterprise agreement with Upwork, but he actually said, you know, find whoever and then we'll pay for those freelancers. But basically, the idea was. Do your jobs better and find who you need to go do them. And he has these great stories of people who had been poor performers in the organization who became kind of stars when they stopped having to do work that they didn't love and they focused on what they did love and then kind of pawned off the other work to freelancers and found people whose passion was what they didn't have and were able to kind of put together kind of an ecosystem or a team of people so that each became team leads. Of a network of freelancers to get work done. And it upped the productivity of that group while saving, I think it was something ridiculous, like 75% year over year costs. And I think that's right. That when you can find the people that actually have the expertise you need, they work faster and more efficiently. When you learn to reach beyond yourself, kind of like in college, right? (laughs) If you try to do all your homework sitting in your dorm room versus going to a study group and working with a bunch of people, at least for me, my grade plummeted when I was by myself, but when I actually started working with other people, it actually expanded. And I think the diversity of people you have access to in this new free market offers that opportunity not to just work with some amazing folks all over the world, but you're really upskilling yourself at the same time. Because if you bring in someone with the latest and greatest machine learning and you bring someone else who with the latest and greatest materials and knowledge, and you're working with them you then know some of that knowledge. You know it exists and it starts to make you hungry for more. And part of the organizational problem that's ramped today is that the old model, where you hire people, keep them in labs, keep them insulated from anyone else, is basically insulating them from the changes that are going on out there. And it's why so many companies are becoming obsolete. Their very organizational model is at odds with this rapid change. And so companies that are opening up and bringing in talent and kind of rotating that through and even letting their employees kind of work on side gigs, that opens up an entire new kind of concept for
1: how work and knowledge gets used. And as you describe the opportunity for organizations, but also sort of the old world challenge, it makes me think about what we're living through right now. You're on this call from your home office, I believe I am from mine what was the plan for the program's evolution in the years to come during the term of NOISE 2, maybe beyond that, if if you all have mapped that out? And how has this pandemic had an impact on that plan, the timeline, the type of work that you maybe are already doing or will be doing through the program or how you're shaping the way in which you scale it?
2: You know, it's funny. I was having a discussion with Chuck Hamilton, who who used to be at HeroX as the COO, and he described it really eloquently. He said, you know... Used to companies and organizations were all about efficiency, right? And how do you how do you squeeze out the process so that you're more efficient, get a bigger bank for your buck? But that led to very tight supply chains, you know, just in time. That we are now seeing has all sorts of impacts when you have this kind of disruptive change like COVID. I mean, it's just companies really need to have uh, kind of a balancing act of efficiency and resiliency. And I thought, you know, that is absolutely right. Because this disruptive change isn't just COVID. It's the disruptive change that's happening through this rapid pace. So automation, robotics is bringing rapid change, uh, the changing marketplace, the, the way the markets are changing worldwide as countries become richer and richer. All of these create constant disruption. And I think companies and organizations need to figure out how do you stay resilient. So to bring back your question, which is how are we going to use this and scale this and what's this for our future? We are having those discussions now. We're trying to figure out what is the best way to use this? Obviously there are clear things to use open innovation for in keeping up with the latest and greatest technology and to really reformulate the way we do R&D and tech work and problem solving to where that becomes part of the fabric, right? Part of the normal thing, right? How do we just make that part of the process? And that's... We're getting progress on that. The freelance piece is, is kind of newer, you know interesting conversations that you have in the HR world uh, where they see it. They see that it's hard to get the talent they need and that we need new ways to find the talent for when we need it and be able to be agile in our usage of it. They've already recognized that that hiring 30-year tenure folks is not a strategy going forward. They're already looking at you know how and this is happening all across government. How do we have shorter stint civil servants? How do we do various models that might change? And I'll say that starting to even have the conversations about what is work in the future and are there models where nobody works full time for any one organization, but everyone works, you know, with a bunch of different folks, and that that's okay. There's a lot of runway still to go on that transition, but. There are people talking about what are the impacts? Is it good to have benefits coupled with an organization if the new model requires you to kind of move around more? And maybe there needs to be a decoupling of work and benefits so that you can actually do things. I, I know so many people that are miserable in jobs right now that they can't leave because they have to have the benefits. What we see is there's kind of a. This is more probably more personal vision, but. There's an opportunity for people to live into their passion to access global marketplaces that, as an individual, start to develop lifelong learning skills that allow you to be robust to those changes. Some of the biggest problems with, say, factory workers or taxi drivers is they were trapped in those by companies that weren't developing them. So that organizations would use those workers until those workers weren't needed anymore and then dump them onto society without any new training. And what we're seeing in this new freelance world is these platforms are starting to enable lifelong learning that just by working on these platforms, people are learning new skills. PowerOIO is a great example, right? Where Michael Burdick set up a system where every time they assign somebody an accounting task, they assign it. Kind of at the limit of that person's skill, so that by the time they finish that, they've actually stretched and learned a little bit more. And if you think about it, if we adopted that approach everywhere, then our workers would never be laid off, right? They would always be keeping up with the latest and greatest because it would be built into the fabric of the work and the work assignments uh, that come through platforms. We're seeing that future, and we're trying to figure out back to more reality is okay. If that's coming, how do we, the government, try to figure out how to best do that? How to best find those people that can make a difference for us? How do we find and make them contributors? One of the things we found in Open Innovation is that people love NASA and they want to be part of the mission. I kind of looked up on NASA you know, for 50 years, NASA's way of doing public outreach has been, look at this cool stuff we're doing. Don't you wish you were us? And challenges were suddenly providing, you know, thousands of people the opportunity to kind of work with NASA to be part of the team. Even if their stuff didn't get selected, they kind of got to be in there understanding the problem and trying to contribute. And it kind of lit me up and thought, well, this is a whole new mob public participation in everything, right? And that passion can come through in lots of different ways and provides as a way to engage the public. So I think all of those things kind of swirl together and we're trying to figure out how to structure that in a way that
1: benefits the agency. There's so much of that that resonates. If you look around the space, it's a conversation that needs to be had. And, And on Lifelong Learning, BTG, we survey our talent, we ask them what they're interested in. It led us to actually a partnership with General Assembly I've spoken to people, part of other marketplaces, don't expect high end independent talent necessarily to want that same level because they maybe, you mentioned Harvard Business School, many of the folks in our talent group have degrees from there. Well, those folks still want to improve their skills. You know, they may have graduated before data science, before digital marketing was a discipline taught in the classroom. They want to extend themselves and and be certified and and be able to serve clients in expanded ways. So I think you're nailing so much of what needs to be thought through to scale the use of on demand talent. And I know we're coming close to wrapping up and I have to ask you, Kosi's been involved with you know, things from developing an asteroid tracker algorithm, adapting video game controllers for recreational and therapeutic use at, at VA medical centers. There's some current challenges around removing sedimentation from reservoirs, reinventing the Mars rover wheel, designing the next generation of space toilets. On a personal note, What's your favorite challenge? The most interesting one, the one that you just, you're thrilled that it came through the program, the idea of it, the maybe the solution that was developed. What would you choose
2: Wow, to highlight? That's really tough. You know, we've done like 460 odd challenges. So that's a really tough question. There's a few that stand out. One was the ISS handrail clamp challenge that we did on GrabCAD. Mainly because that a couple of reasons. One, it kind of went viral in... You know, it was like a $3,000 challenge that ended up with four or 500 folks that really were wanting to be engaged in providing solutions. And it had some really cool kind of 3D printable handrail plants that we came out of that with. But it also turned us on to micro purchase challenges and that turned us on to freelancing. So it was the beginning of an exploratory journey that really helped us. There's another one the disruption tolerant networking security key challenge just because I used to work on that team and I'd convinced them to do some challenges. And they actually had this problem that they knew was lurking out there that they needed to solve at some point in the future, which was how do they share security keys in a network that could never be time synchronized. And they had looked all around the government for folks that they might have solutions and nobody had a solution. And TopCoder ended up solving that for us. But the funny thing was, they actually pointed a solution using the Byzantine Generals problem, which we actually had implemented to synchronize computers on a spacecraft I'd worked on. <laughs> so it was almost like we had to ask somebody from the outside that we didn't know to show us that we actually knew the solution, we just didn't know to apply it to security. That, to me, just demonstrated the power of open innovation right there.
1: It must be gratifying given your involvement there with the team. And that's that's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that example. You know, and Steve, I appreciate your time and talking with us today. Uh, Again, my guest is Steve Rader, the deputy director of NASA's Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation, known as COSI. And I'm Adam Zellner for the BTG Insights on Demand podcast. In upcoming episodes, we'll be talking with other experts about how independent on-demand talent can help organizations infuse in-demand skills and expertise into critical work. Subscribe for these insights and more wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website, businesstalentgroup.com, if you'd like to get started on a project today. Uh, Thank you for listening. And again, thank you so much, Steve. Hey, thank you, Adam. This was fun.